0: and definitely check out those shows as well. Today is a special week for Zivi Books because we have announced our spring season of books launching in 2023 and are releasing one cover each day for this week of September 19th. On at Zibi Books on Instagram. So check it out and follow along and see what our first books coming out starting in February, 2023 are all about on Zibi Books. And while you're at it, check out the new Zippy Zibi Mag, ZippyMag.com, which we launched last week and is the new literary lifestyle destination. Check it out. Nabil Ayers is the author of My Life in the Sunshine, Searching for My Father and Discovering My Family. He has written about race and music for the New York Times, NPR, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, and GQ. His memoir was published on June 7, 2022. He is the president of Beggars Group US, where he has run campaigns for the National, Big Thief, Grimes, Future Islands, and St. Vincent, as well as reissue campaigns, including Pixie's album, Doolittle, which was certified platinum in 2019. At the age of 25, Ayers and his business partner opened Seattle's Sonic Boom Record Store, which they sold to a longtime customer in 2016. As a drummer, Ayers has performed in several bands, including The Long Winters and Tommy Stinson. On his own record label, The Control Group slash Valley of Search, Ayers has released music by Kate Lebon, Leaky Lee, The Killers, PJ Harvey, Patricia Brennan, and his uncle, the jazz musician, Alan Brofman. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife. Welcome, Nabil. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Thank you. my life in the sunshine, searching for my father and discovering my family.
4: Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here.
0: Oh, it's nice to have you here. You wrote this beautiful memoir, Musical, and it's lyricism and in the way you wrote it, but also all the music influences in it, in the way you talk about your family was so interesting. Start out by explaining more about the book and also how this misperception that your mother was left when really that was not at all what happened.
4: Right. The book starts the moment my mother meets my father when she was 20 years old and my father was, I think, 29. And he's a relatively famous jazz musician named Roy Ayers, and she was a kind of retired ballerina who was lost in New York, not sure what to do, and knew in her head that she wanted to be a young single mother. And the moment she met my father, she said, this is the person I want to have my child with. And to be clear, she didn't say, this is the person I want to be with, or this is the person I want to marry. It was all about the child and her raising a child on her own. So they got together a few times, and she eventually asked him, will you be the father of my child? You don't have to be involved in our lives. And he said yes, and I've always known that story, and she's always known that story, obviously, and everyone kind of kept their end of the deal. So I had this really idyllic, amazing childhood where my father wasn't in the picture, but it never really felt like he was missing because there wasn't a divorce. He didn't leave us. Everything happened exactly the way it was planned, And I had an incredible uncle and really great male role models. And I think in a lot of ways, a better childhood than a lot of people with, you know, traditional on paper, perfect two-parent households. So that's that's kind of where it begins.
0: Yeah. You don't often hear somebody saying like, that's the, you know, let me just grab that DNA, you know, like <laughs> I know, <laughs> but I love it. It was so empowering. But later in the book, you talk about how it's almost a selfish act when a woman decides that on the part of the child. Like you wish you had, had a dad. Like you know, why would why were you deprived of that before you even had a shot? Like why didn't sure. she position it like be involved? So tell me right.
4: about and that's what's interesting. Now that the book is out, of course, I'm getting lots of you know opinions solicited and unsolicited from friends and other people who say you never got to be part of this decision, which is, of course, a great point that I lived my life based on a decision these two other people made. Right. And there were points at which I mean, when I'm it was it wasn't until my 30s that I finally decided I think it's time to try to meet my father. He's always sort of existed in my life because I hear his music all the time. People ask me if I'm related to him. We work in the same business and live in the same city, but truly don't know each other, never see each other. So when I had lunch with him when I was about thirty five, we really got along well and connected and it kind of felt like that that's the first time i sort of had some different questions for my mother which were kind of you know i think she always protected me and in a way didn't expose me to him because she was worried that i might miss him or feel like something was missing whereas we had this really great life without him and i think as soon as i met him and realized oh wow there's a connection here and there could be more i thought about the past and thought huh what if my mother had helped me do this when I was 10 or 20 or even 30. I mean, you know, 35 years old is, a, is pretty old to finally kind of meet your father for the first time. So that's the first time I I wouldn't say I felt anger, but didn't see everything exactly as my mother had presented it.
0: Yeah. And you said also that it was so crazy for you to see somebody who
4: looked so much like you. Oh, it was really wild to, to sit across from him at a table at a restaurant and just... Mannerisms and the way he laughed and and certain motions and sounds—it was just like this is so weird. We've never really met, but that's exactly what I would do.
0: Oh my gosh!
4: Really powerful, yeah.
0: That is crazy. You did write a lot about your uncle Alan, right? Mm-hmm. Your mom's brother, and how he was so influential in raising you as well. And he you wove him into like so many scenes all throughout. Tell me about like what what is the is he is everything? What's your relationship now? Like everything. yeah dad, how does, how does that how yeah. has
4: that work? Because then he went and had, he had his own children and everything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's still a huge part of my life. Alan is, I okay, guess, no, seventy. I never want
0: to assume anything. I know, I know. he's, I think <laughs> like, he's 71.
4: <laughs> yeah, okay. I think he's 71. I mean, the crazy thing is that he and my mother never drank, never into drugs, even in New York in the late 60s, early 70s, very clean living, sort of hippie people. So they have these really perfect memories. They're in great health. It's, it's kind of, it's great. So... He's two years younger than my mother. They grew up very close to each other, both moved to New York City as soon as they could when they were around 18. And when my mother decided to have me, Alan pretty much vowed at that moment to be a part of my life. And my mother was kind of having this, well, this is what I want to do, but what am I doing moment? Alan stepped in and said, don't worry, I'm here. Everything's going to be fine. And he was always a huge part of my life. Even when we didn't live in the same city, I would spend summers with him in New York or he would come visit us. And he was really my father figure. And and what's interesting is, you know, I've had a life in music. I played music, played drums and bands for decades. And now I run a record company and that's all I've ever done is something to do with music. And the assumption has kind of always been that I got that from my father, who's a very talented, famous musician, but... I'm sure I got some of his DNA, but I never got anything else from him, whereas Alan and my mother both really nurtured that. Alan bought me a drum set when I was two years old, and he would play music with me, and he took me to so many concerts and bought me records, and you know, the two of them were the people that really made sure that music was part of my daily life. So it's this nature versus nurture thing.
0: Didn't But didn't Alan go to Berklee School of Music?
4: Oh, he did, of course, yeah.
0: He also, <laughs> He's he also had that in his... Also
4: an amazing musician, Yeah. Yeah. And and we've also learned sort of later on that on my mother's side and Alan's side, there are tons of classical musicians and and opera singers and, and way more people than we thought. So
0: you, yeah, were it, you were just doomed.
4: Right. You were just right. Yeah. It comes from everyone.
0: Determined. You know what choice did you have really? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about being part Jewish. I was sort of surprised to read about this. I am Jewish myself. Oh, you are. How you changed your name? Tell me that. Right. Whole piece And the, like visiting your family was so funny. And I had a grandpa Joe, by the way. Oh um, wow visit your grandpa Joe in Flatbush. Mm -hmm. Let me just read this little passage. Let's see, you were talking about what it looked like in Flatbush. You said, they looked at my mother and me, but nobody smiled or said hello. The residents of Flatbush Likely had no idea that by Jewish law, both my mother and I were Jewish. Instead, we walked the streets, feeling judged and unwelcome. But when we arrived at Grandpa Joe's, we were home. He's such a schnorrer, Edith would say, describing a neighbor who always asks to borrow things. She was hawking me like a Chinook, Joe exclaimed about a former colleague who talked too much. The next winter, when my mother brought me to the doctor with a serious cold, the doctor asked me to describe my symptoms. I have, I do not even know how to pronounce
4: <laughs> A hawk and a schnoz. <laughs> I
0: have a hawk and a schnoz, I said in a nasal voice, describing my sore throat and stuffy nose in my own made up Yiddish, Yiddish sounding terms.
4: <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm glad you like that as a Jewish person and you aren't offended by it. I mean, oh, my should mother, I be no, no I not at all. It. I not loved at all. it. Yeah. It's, uh, my mother and Ellen, my uncle were raised. my grandparents who are Russian and Romanian Jewish in Long Island, and they were raised Jewish. And everyone's last name was Brofman, which comes from the Romanian Brofmanu, very Jewish name. And I was raised or born Nabil Brofman. And that was my name until, until I was done with high school. But I was never really, I wasn't raised Jewish. I wasn't really raised in any religion. My uncle and my mother didn't convert, but sort of became, this is the word I like to use, Baha'is, the Baha'i faith yep, in New yep. York in the early 70s, which is a very open, accepting religion that's all about equality and peace and love. And it's pretty amazing. And my name comes from a Baha'i book. So they never abandoned their Jewish faith, but they definitely sort of took on something else. And and so we went to a lot of Baha'i things when I was a kid, but Jewish culture was always a huge part of my childhood. I saw my grandparents a lot. I knew my great-grandparents who you just read about and that scene, I mean, we used to go visit them in Flatbush in Brooklyn, and what we haven't mentioned yet is that my father is black and my mother is white, and my mother was definitely, even when I was 10 years old, you know, a pretty young, cool hippie who wore you know, great dancer outfits. And so I was just remembering what it was like for us to walk down the street in this sort of conservative Jewish neighborhood, her in like really short shirts and a tank top and me with an Afro and probably a kiss t-shirt. Like it was just, it was a crazy (laughs) scene. And what those people didn't know is that we were going to visit my 80 year old great grandfather, Joe Chesler to go, you know, eat lox and gefilte fish and (laughs) do the whole thing. And I, I that very much felt like, and still feels like part of me. And my wife is Jewish and we had a Jewish wedding with a rabbi and I don't necessarily consider myself Jewish because I don't, you know, I don't go to temple or do anything, but it's a huge part of me.
0: I would say a lot of people who are Jewish don't right, go to right. temple. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's all about, a lot of it is about the, sort of the identity and culture behind it, as mm-hmm. you will know.
4: But, uh, and my mother, the funny thing is my mother is now back to being Jewish, culturally Jewish, but her husband is a non-Jewish person from North Dakota who converted, which, as you know, is much more difficult to become a Jew that way than to be raised Jewish and simply fall into it. And I went to his bar mitzvah when he was
3: oh. sixty
4: and watched him chant the Torah and he's, he does all the work. He's super devout. It's amazing.
0: Oh my gosh, my husband, yeah. my husband converted when we got married. My second husband, anyway, it was very sweet. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't really know that, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, it's a good crash course. Yeah. Tell me about the process of writing this book, or when did you even decide to write a book, and then what was it like doing it?
4: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I have never been a writer. I loved writing in college. I was a terrible student because all I was doing was playing in bands and putting on parties and DJing at the college radio station and doing all the things that apply directly to my life in the music business now, and it all makes sense when I look back. But the only A I got in college was in a writing class, and it wasn't because... I really buckled down or worked hard. It was simply because I loved it and it felt natural and it was really fun and easy for me. So I kind of, I thought about that, but then I, you know, started working in the music business and playing in bands and it just never was never part of my life. And about six years ago, I just started writing. I think I was old enough in my forties and I had so many stories in my head about touring and bands and the record store I used to own and just lots of things that for some reason it felt like I feel like I should start writing these down not necessarily to publish them not even for anyone to see them. And this if I think about it this my mother does this I get emails every day that are kind of short stories her observations from riding the subway and the people that she saw and my grandmother wrote a ton of short stories and I found them a few years ago and they're really incredible about you know Brooklyn in the 40s and 50s so I think maybe it's just kind of in my blood this sort of storytelling or documenting of my life so I started writing these fun stories and Published a couple of them, which was really fun and exciting and felt good. And my wife finally said, look, this is really fun. It's great that you're writing about your record stores and your band. What you should really do is write about your father and your race, because that's what you're interested in. And that's what people will be interested in. And I thought about it and it scared me a bit, but in a good way, because those are much more personal topics. Those are things I don't talk about very much. And in a weird way, I thought, oh, that's a great idea because I'm already writing with no plan for anyone to see it. So I don't see why I can't tackle these more difficult subjects with no plan for anyone to see it. So I did, but I'd never known my father. So I kind of, I remember being puzzled and sitting there in the Brooklyn Historical Society Library, where I did a lot of writing at the time and kind of saying, hmm, what do I write about? And I thought, well, I can just write about each of the times I met him when I was a kid and what that felt like. And there was one time when my uncle brought me to Electric Lady, a famous recording studio in New York, and we met him for a brief moment or another time when we ran into him on the street and my mother sort of introduced me to him, all these things that were in my head. So I started writing those as just kind of short stories and then started writing about what it was like to hear my father's music at a bar or in a club, which happens all the time and it used to happen all the time. Or when someone asks me if I'm related to him, all these things, and eventually It's very visual to me. This was all on a computer, of course, but I had this, I saw this long table and these little stacks of paper that started at age zero and went till, you know, very recently. So decades of stories. And I realized, huh, that's interesting. If I just could figure out a way to connect these and kind of figure out a theme and a sort of binding element, which of course is music, I might be able to turn this into a book. And that's the first time that it occurred to me. I was never trying to write a book and I think it would have been much harder to say, I'm going to write a book, chapter mm-hmm. one, and do there's, there's no part of me that was ready to do that. But I'd done so much of the hard work. Not, I mean, there's still a lot to do, but emotionally sort of getting into the father stuff, which was the hardest part. I'd already sort of taken my brain and my heart there. So it felt like, well, now I'm in it. So I should just really try to do this.
0: Wow. Interesting.
3: And then when did you
0: sell it and all that? Like what happened then?
4: I spent about a year, year and a half, probably closer to two years on my own, getting it together and got it pretty far. Pretty, I mean, there's a version of it that was done. Mm -hmm. And then it's funny because I don't know anyone in the publishing world, no agents, no authors. Um, I'm just in a totally different business, but in such a similar, you know, in New York where I know lots of people who know lots of people. So... So I looked online and it said, you have to have a book proposal. And so I said, okay, I'll write a book proposal. (laughs) And I wrote one and and I had a lot of fun doing it. And it actually helped me figure out the end of the book, which which was great. And I just started emailing some friends and saying, hey, who knows a literary agent? Apparently that's what I need to get this to the next step. And a bunch of friends got back in touch and some people put me in touch with people. And this took a few months, but I met with, I think, seven agents and had offers from most of them which was shocking and amazing and chose my favorite one who I love and still work with and it was a crazy thing because I work in the music business again where you know I used to play in bands and you want to get signed and there's always some some confident manager who would be like I'm gonna get you a record deal in two months I'm just gonna send this out and you're gonna get signed and so I've, I've been there a million times and so My agent said, look, we're in a great place. This proposal's great. Let me tweak it. I'm going to get it out to a really small group of people who I think will like it. And I think we'll do a deal by Thanksgiving. And this was in September of 2019. And so I thought, well, that's crazy, but sure, do your thing. And to make a long story short, uh, sign the deal with Viking before Thanksgiving.
0: (laughs) Which agent did you pick? Who was
4: your agent? Uh, Oh, it's Meg Thompson.
0: Oh, great. Okay. My gosh. I hear more great things about her.
4: Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. That's awesome. And then it was another, what, about a year and a half of working with my editor, Meg Leader, who I loved and which was such a better process than I could have even imagined where, you know, of course there were times when I got frustrated because she was, I'm sure, working on other books or taking a long time to work on my book. But then when she would bring a draft back to me, just the notes and the edits and the thoughts were so incredibly helpful and spot on. And there was never a moment that I feared, which was always going to be like, Oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. What is this? You know, you hear about things like that. It never even came close to happening. It was really just a great match and she totally understood it and helped make it so much better.
0: Oh my gosh. Would you ever do it again? Now that you know what it's like? Yeah. Are you doing it again?
4: (laughs) I'm not doing it again yet. I mean, this, this weekend, I finally had time to kind of sit and do some writing, but it's a funny thing and I'm sure you've experienced this and lots of people have, I mean, the way that the, the first book came was so natural Mm -hmm. and I wasn't trying and I had all the time in the world and there were no expectations. Nobody asked me to write a book and then it kind of happened. And now I definitely have this like, well, what's next? What are you doing? People are asking me. and, And so it's, it is a different kind of pressure, but I'm just trying to do the same thing I did before, which is just think about what's interesting to me and write about it and see where it goes.
0: Well, you know, you know your process. So they <laughs> right. Right? that's there's no straight line to right. getting this output, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. World land, you know. For people who aren't as familiar with your dad or you and maybe music is not the center of their world or whatever, can you give <laughs> yeah. more like insight so that maybe when they hear a song or you know what you're working on now in the music world and just give a sure. little more background there.
4: Yeah, and my dad is named Roy Ayers. He is 81 right now, which is crazy, but he's been playing music for a long time. He's known as a jazz musician, but also sort of seminal in the kind of jazz funk scene where it kind of merged in the 70s. He's super heavily sampled, I think perhaps the most sampled artist of all time. And so really had this big resurgence in the 90s and 2000s when hip hop started doing that. And his most famous song is called Everybody Loves the Sunshine, which even if you don't know it by name, you've probably heard. I, mean, I think it was in five different commercials last year alone. It was an Apple commercial and a Coors commercial. It's really crazy how much this song from wow. 1976 just lives on. So, and he has tons of albums, and he's touring Europe right now as we speak. Very active, you know. can't do anything but play music. And we still don't know each other, but... I like him and I love his music. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and as far as me, I mean, I've played music all my life. My uncle started you know, playing music with me. He's a saxophone player. I would play drums. He would play saxophone. We have amazing audio recordings of that when I was three or four and when he would have been like in his early 20s and it's me being really bossy you can hear my mother in the background introducing us. And then, and I was exposed to a lot of jazz and kind of I, funk as a I kid. I love how
0: you were carrying around your sticks.
4: Oh yeah. I, I was, yeah, I really wanted people to know I was a drummer. That was important. It was like carrying around like a sign <laughs> walking around drumsticks. Yeah. There's lots of pictures. And, uh, and then I saw Kiss when I was, well, I, I discovered Kiss when I was five and my mother took me to see them at Madison Square Garden when I was seven, which was truly a life-changing wow. moment. And from then on, it was just like, I just want to be a rock drummer and that's it. And we moved a lot, lived in New York and Amherst, Massachusetts and Salt Lake City. But all I was trying to do was play in bands and moved to Seattle to go to college in 1989, which was just an incredible time. That's right when Nirvana and Soundgarden and Grunge and all that stuff started to happen. And it was coincidence that I was there, but was really there at the right time. So I was around for a lot of that, got to see some incredible shows and started playing in bands and toured through the 90s and 2000s and also opened a record store with my friend and always kind of had my feet in both sides I was always interested in the business even as a kid I was you know we would my band would record a demo tape and then I would try to sell it at school the next day like there's always a part of it that I understood and appreciated so it wasn't weird for me to eventually stop touring in a band and start working for a record company. So now I'm the president of Beggars Group, which is, I think, the biggest independent label group. We work with Radiohead and The National and Grimes and Adele and tons of great artists. And it's a wonderful job.
0: Wow. What a great story. I mean, which is why it's a great book. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Really amazing. And we had joked at the beginning <laughs> before we started recording, I, but now I will admit to everyone <laughs> listening that I accidentally revealed the cover of this book and feel terrible about it in a, in a post after i had gotten the galley and didn't realize it hadn't been publicly revealed. So I've been feeling contrite about
4: that. I loved it. As I was saying, it was so funny because I, I had, I turned 50 on January 23rd and my plan was I'm going to announce my book on my birthday and then I thought, oh, actually, that's a Sunday. I should do it on a weekday so we can get some press pickup. Of course, the business mind kicked in. So I think whatever it was, I planned for a certain day. And I think the day before, Sorry. your story popped up. And I was like, oh, my God. And But my oh, my God was like this incredible feeling of excitement because it's the first time I saw it on a phone screen. And it was really... Amazing, and I loved it. And I think I DM'd you. I think I said like, "Thanks." I was going to post this tomorrow, yeah. and you are like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry." But, but honestly, it was it couldn't have been a better launch, and I'm thankful that you did that.
0: Oh, okay, well, good.
4: <laughs> you yeah, sorry it gave me this instant credibility.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I do a lot of stuff on the weekends. <laughs> anyway, do you have any advice for aspiring authors now that you've gotten a book successfully out and right. everything?
4: I mean, I think I I was so lucky and I really realized this, that I, I was never, I've never been a writer or an author for a living. So I've always been able to take my own time, write about what I want to write about, not worry about getting paid for it, which are all, you know, it's an incredible luxury because I have a job and writing is sort of my whatever hobby or side hustle or whatever you want to call it. So I know everyone's not that fortunate, but. I do think that's a way to think about it as if, if you have another job or you do something else, which a lot of people do and you want to write, the thing to do, what worked for me, what we just talked about was really just writing with no intention of anyone seeing it ever, just write for yourself. And it, it really, for me, took away this incredible layer of fear and insecurity and all the things that we all feel when we're writing about ourselves or about our feelings or our thoughts and all that stuff. And so it just allowed me to, to really write about anything and say anything. And then eventually, as I kind of honed it into this book or into shorter pieces or whatever, I just took out the things I was uncomfortable with or sometimes left in those things because actually I was like, wow, I'm glad I said this because actually maybe I can say this. But really, that's what really worked for me. And that's what I recommend is just go in totally thinking no one's ever going to see this and hopefully something good will come out of it.
0: And I think I'm going to take your wife's advice too when she... (laughs) When she encouraged you to write the stuff that you really wanted to write and the mm-hmm. stuff even the stuff that made you feel scared and uncomfortable, that's usually yeah. stuff anyway. So yeah. Might as well go
4: there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard.
0: It's hard. It's hard. If it's hard, it's probably good. Exactly. If it's feeling hard and and I don't know. I I, I feel like that's a really good sign. Yeah. For the reader, at least. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Nabil, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. My thank life, you. Shine, Fabulous book. As you know, I really, really enjoyed it. And you're a great writer and have a wonderful story. So. Right. Thanks,
4: thanks so much, Zibi. I appreciate you having me on and uh, hopefully I'll see you soon in New York.
0: Yes, that'd be great. All, All right. right. Thanks. Bye, thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.